Hi, and welcome back to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 111. And today I'm very pleased to bring back to you um, Professor Graham Close. Hi, Graham. Hello, Lauren. How are we? I'm all right, mate. I'm all right. So just to refresh our memories here, the last, well, the first podcast I ever did was also the first time you joined us on this, this podcast series, which was with James um, and that was, and this is going to blow us all away, was in June 2014. Nice. Woo, nice. Getting old. Well, I think you had hair back then. <laughs> uh, I, I very much doubt it. Um, and uh, you, you, you've, you've done a number of contrib- contributions for us on this, on this podcast, including one specifically on uh, vitamin D, which I recommend everyone come watch it, and I'll link to that in, in the show notes. But... There's, there's a number of reasons why I'm particularly uh, grateful to have you um, back. Uh, one of which is, you know, you, you've played a major role as an influence to me personally. So I'm extremely grateful for that and how that's helped shape my own uh, development and education. Um, but also the topic today aligns very much with my own main interest in terms of what I did my doctorate in and what I'm currently looking to do some research in. Um, in evidence-based practice and the paper that we're going to discuss today is your recent paper called from um, paper to podium Um, now before we before we get into that paper um, just in case folks don't know who you are or they're they're not quite sure they've heard your name um, in the unlikely event that that's all that it is perhaps you could just give us some background as as to who you are and what you're up to yeah, sure. So um, I'm a professor of human physiology at Liverpool John Moores University, where I'm also with my colleague, James Morton. We run the, the master's degree there in sport nutrition. Um, but I guess that's only a quarter of, of my life. Um, but the rest of uh, me is very much based around sports. And, you know, I, I did try myself to be a professional rugby league player back in the mid-90s and you know, played for a few seasons and really enjoyed my time. And that's really moulded what I now do, which is working as a sport nutrition consultant. Well, I'm very fortunate that I've currently got roles with the England Rugby Union side. So helping them in the build-up to a World Cup. This will be my uh, my second World Cup campaign with England. Um, I've been working with Everton Football Club now for a few years. Uh, my my ro- most recent venture has been working with the European Tour Golf, trying to set up some nutrition structures within there. And then I also serve on the board of the Sport and Exercise Nutrition Register, which I know um, you've done a lot of work for yourself, Lauren, where I'm I'm now the deputy chair of a register, so trying to drive the standards of sport nutrition in the UK. Uh, And then I'm, you know, hopefully an active researcher with, I think, around about 110, 115 original research papers to date. so yeah, so they're my four worlds are research for teaching, um, driving the standards of sport nutrition, hopefully, and, and the applied consultancy. That's, that's, yeah, it's great for a number of reasons. And, you know, I, I mean, it's, it is actually quite rare to find researchers who are able to look at, at, at this from multiple, through multiple lenses. And, you know, having been an athlete yourself, you, you know, you've been on one end, um, being a, a teacher, being a, a lecturer, being um, a researcher, um, and being a practitioner, and not just 
you know, a, a practitioner in any, in any sense other than at the highest possible level and not just in one sport, but in multiple sports. And obviously that gives you an enormous advantage in terms of, well, particularly what we're going to talk about today um, when we're looking at science, um, the quality of science and the relevance of science um, and how that can be used by a practitioner to inform their practice and if we're talking about science you know we're not we're talking about it as a tool a tool used to um to help inform practice which is you know I, I, this is something that people don't get to talk about very much um and um that's why i'm super excited now just before we get into the paper i just wanted to um discuss briefly about evidence-based practice and what actually evidence-based practice is because that's a term that people use um, without really knowing you know what it actually means and the reason why I'm doing this is because I think it's directly relevant to the value of this paper that you produced and the use that it has in helping practitioners be um, the best that they can be so if we if we if we briefly um, define evidence-based practice as um, and here's a quote from um, uh, one uh, one source that I think is of value here is that it's integrating the best available research evidence with clinical expertise and the patient's unique values and circumstances. Um, it also requires the health professionals to take into account characteristics of the practice context in which they work. Um, and usually uh, the best research evidence is usually from relevant research that has been carried out using sound methodology. Um, and that clinical expertise is a combination of the clinician's experience, education, and, and clinical skills. And we must always bear in mind the importance of the individual's needs and personal uh, preferences, expectations, and values, and so on. Now, for people who are used to my podcast, they'll, they'll be very familiar with me, me using the, the term context, or more recently, the important skill set of contextualization. Um, which I'm actually writing a paper about. I think it's an important thing. Um, but actually, I, I, I'm going to change my favorite word now to the term relevant, Graham. Is it relevant? The importance of relevance. So it's going to be relevance rather than context. That's going to be the new, the new T-shirt. So anyway, the reason why I've been mentioning this is because it's not just about how good the science is, which is obviously important, but it's how relevant the science is. And that requires... A fair amount of, um, of thought and skill on both sides of the, of the fence in terms of producing the science, but also the importance of selecting, understanding, and using that science to inform practice. So, having said all that, let's bring it back to you and Graham. You know, what, why, given all, given the hundred odd papers that you've written, fantastic um, and important sports nutrition papers for for the most part there. Um, you know, your active role as a practitioner, what actually, you know, got you to write this paper? You know, what, what led to this, you know, the instigation of this paper? Well, in all honesty, Lauren, I was, um, I, I delivered a, a, um, a keynote session over in America and on the back of that, this keynote session was on carbohydrate and on the back of it, there was a commitment to write a review paper. Um, uh, and given that my talk was on carbohydrate, I thought the last thing the world needs is another review paper on carbohydrate periodization. 
Mm. You know, my colleague James Morton and several others have written some excellent papers on that. And there was just no point doing it. But what we did think there was some real point to doing is trying to quantify in a sport nutrition context pretty much what you just tried to describe as evidence-based practice. Because you started off by asking, what is evidence-based practice? And I I think that's a fantastic definition that you you, you quoted back to me. But imagine today's practitioner would have got bored after about the first 10 words. Because we're not capable of going beyond a tweet or an infographic in 2019, which is a massive part of the problem. And rather than tell people what it is, I often tell my students what it isn't. And certainly what it isn't is, there's a paper saying that you give X and you run faster, so I know I'm going to give X. And, and that is what a lot I'm seeing happening in the applied world, where uh, particularly coming from maybe people outside of a nutrition field, whether it's a technical coaches or the coaching staff, will have maybe seen an infographic or a tweet by somebody um, where that has maybe suggested that let's take ketones, for example, ketones will improve performance. And suddenly I'm being questioned as why is every athlete not on ketones without taking into any contextualization uh, or looking at the relevance of that paper uh, in terms of the um, subgroup of people that we're working with. So we thought it was really important to try and define this and try and create what we call this operational framework where uh, you know, trying to guide a practitioner but saying, okay, right, great you're doing the reading, great that you're not relying on somebody's tweet or little stick men pointing you in the right direction, great that you've got that original paper, but let us give us some guidance. Because, again, I, I find that too many of my students uh, and people in the real world at best read an abstract, um, at worst read the last line of an abstract, and take that as a conclusion, and that is what we're going to get. So this paper is all about getting into the methods and looking for um, the elephant traps, but also looking for what the, the author was actually meaning. Because often, you know, you'll see papers that are mistranslated. So a, a, an author might have studied something to test a mechanism, never intending that to be immediately translated. And the next thing you know, the world has translated it inappropriately. I want to. There's a lot. There's a lot there that I want to expand. Um, and you know, this is this is one of those conversations that may not. It's 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 not it's not necessarily going to be a sexy, you know, concept to get into this. But you know, whereas people want to get into the carbohydrate periodization, they want to get into the key. But what we're talking about is really what's going to differentiate someone's ability. Um, you know. Uh, between being good and and bad or you know capable or incapable in what in what they do and of course at the end of the day if you want to be good at what you do in sports nutrition what we're discussing is absolutely critical if you want to excel Um, so let's just bring it back to that because i think you know that there's this habit of people talking about science all the time and they're saying you know and they obviously they're constantly referring to the you know, the, the, the evidence, um, you know, the, 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 the pyramid that you see, um, the hierarchy of evidence that you see bandied around social media all the time. People like to argue about which form of, of studies more important, you know, randomized control studies, the, you know, things like, um, um, 
you know, case studies have no value according to some of these people. And, and, and this is all addressed in your paper and we'll get to that when we go through the paper in a minute. But what I wanted to come back to initially was the importance of the person themselves, the practitioner that's actually yeah. reading your paper is listening to this podcast or is actually intending to be someone who does this stuff. There are certain characteristics that are necessary for that person. Um, you know, there's an expectation that is to be had about that person before they even go through this process because they are essential. Um, you know, um, uh, the filter, if you like. Um, so, so could you just quickly discuss that? And I know that you feel strongly about this particular topic about, you know, you know, training and education of individuals. We're obviously both involved in education, yeah. but but it's not. We're not just biased because of that. It's important to you know for reasons that you can help us understand now. Yeah, well, well this was another reason for writing the paper because um, before we published this paper, myself and James in our teaching was using this framework to try and teach our students. So giving them the framework and giving them a paper to look at, and trying getting them to be that next level of practitioner. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you come out with a master's degree in sport nutrition, I'd like to think that that means you've got the critical appraisal skills to look at the evidence and see can that be translated to your field of practice. I would expect somebody who's done a weekend course in some aspect of sport nutrition to be told this is what someone has said and probably make the mistake of translating that in all contexts in, in every situation. Um, and I think we, our athletes deserve better. Um, we know that a lot of the sport nutrition research that is coming out is very supplement focused. And because of that, it's all too easy for people to write papers in such a way that it's promoting uh, a supplement. And with all the supplement contamination, all the things that go with it, we want to make sure that if we are advising an athlete to actually take something, that it isn't just evidence-based, but it's evidence based in the right relevance as we're, as we're talking about in the right context mm. and um, we're not actually then advising if it's not a professional athlete we're not advising the next standard down to waste the hard-earned money because some of these are, are really expensive so for me this type of paper is all about the academic that is going to help the athlete it probably was never meant for the athlete it was meant for uh, those working in that field to get them to think that a little bit more carefully about is that paper really translatable and, and, and you'll see we've come up with a number of criteria that go far beyond uh, the context or you know anything like that you know trying to get people to understand the participant uh, you know so we all know that in a university I'm doing it myself at the moment you know I'm very interested in CBD oil because everyone's talking about it um, so my first study in a university environment is getting some of my uh, students to do the muscle damaging exercise to look at it. Now that's going to be interesting and it'll give us a starting point, but whether that'll be translatable to an elite rugby player who's getting smashed on a field for 80 minutes, you know, I can see that in a lot of the muscle soreness literature, but some of the things that have been implemented in a lab-based modest model of soreness just don't even begin to touch it in a rugby player who's been smashing each other for 80 minutes. And we've just done a study like that on some of these polyphenols that have got loads of evidence that maybe after a marathon and um, in a lab-based damage are effective. But we give them during a, 
a professional rugby game before and after and measured a whole variety of markers of recovery. And they didn't even take the edge off it. So long answer to a short question is basically just to get our students and then practitioners thinking a little bit more and just being more um, rounded, thoughtful, evidence-based practitioners. So, yeah, no, I completely, I completely agree with you. And, and I guess where I'm also trying to go with this is in order to be able to actually even read the paper, understand the paper, not, I don't mean they can read the, the English words on the paper. Um, you know, I, I mean to actually translate it, understand it. You know, we use the phrase contextualize it and, and so on requires a certain set of skills in order for you to be able to even understand what you're talking about in the paper. And, and uh, you know, we're going to get into some of this um, uh, in a minute, but I've got another little thing I'm just going to mm -hmm. quote here because I think it's useful before we get into this more deeply. And this is by uh, Coker in 2001. Knowing science does not mean simply knowing facts. It means understanding the nature of science criteria of evidence, design of meaningful experiments, weighing of possibilities, testing of hypothesis, establishment of theories, and the many aspects of scientific methods to draw reliable conclusions. Now, the reason why I'm mentioning that is if, you, if you've not even done any science, and by that I mean, you know, gone to university, done, um, you know, uh, had a go at uh, doing some research, may not be mind-blowing, Nobel Prize-winning research, but simply by doing it, it helps you understand a bit more about maybe the bigger, deeper studies that are out there that, yes, they might have better labs and so on, um, but you have a better capability to understand what they're talking about in that paper, as opposed to someone who fancies the idea of, right, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to be a sports nutrition practitioner, but I'm not going to go and you know, do the, the relevant training and education to do that, which is a, a decision they they could make but again I'm, I'm not saying this from the perspective of, of we're biased you know uh, go to each other's respective universities join Senna well we do absolutely highly recommend that but the, my, my simple point here is if you want to make a career out of this and be good at this you need to be able to understand this stuff um, you, you, you know the, the, these tools that you need to pick up through that training and education are going to be in your translational toolbox, your ability to actually put the science to practice effectively. Because if you get good results, it means you get um, repeat business, we'll put it that way. Your clients get the medals, the, you get a good name, you get a good reputation. That comes back to you in your career. Um, it is absolutely in your best interests to be doing this. Yeah. Um, which is why I'm, I, I, I'm mentioning it. It's not just about getting into the oh, boring science and so on. You know, this stuff is for the younger practitioners who may not realize just how important this stuff is. Um, so I feel passionately about that, obviously, which is why I'm droning on. Um, so Graham, let, let's just kick into the paper a bit, but before we, you know, get into um, the first aspect of your paper, could you just quickly um, illustrate just how fast the field of sports nutrition is actually evolving because I think this is also highly relevant. Yeah, um, we always do things like this. We jump on PubMed and we, we, we have a look. And so we opened up our paper by just quoting that. But you know, in the last 
six years, there's been something like a fourfold increase in the number of research papers. Now, in some ways, that's a good thing. In other ways, I think we've diluted a market and actually there's a lot of quite weak research that's come out. Um, but yeah, it's a rapidly growing area, um, partly because of a huge growth in the discipline of sport nutrition. There's more and more courses now offering a sport nutrition at both undergraduate and master's. Um, and then obviously, it's a highly lucrative area. If we actually just look at the supplement industry, you know, who do fund quite a bit of research. I'm not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. You know, yeah. if research is going to have to be done, somebody's got to fund it. Mm. But yeah, it, it's a huge, um, huge growth area. And because of that, it, even as myself as a, a full-time academic, it's quite hard to keep up with the literature, as you probably realise yourself. Mm-hmm. It's a full-time job in itself, isn't it? Yeah. Hence, hence why I do this podcast, really. Um, yeah, no, it, it, it's mind-boggling. Um, and so you mentioned that, that you know, poor research, because um, that's really an important thing here is the ability to differentiate quality from flawed science, which yes. is why I was mentioning earlier that, that if you can't tell the difference between quality and flawed science, that in itself is a major problem, which is why you need some training and education into this. Mm. Um, but like you say, you know, this is a huge growth area, not only the supplement industry, but there are now, and I know we've talked about this um, not so long ago, you know, the emergence of the sports nutrition degree is, you know, it's not even, you know, it's not even that old, really. You know, if we're thinking of Clyde Williams and when he sort of kicked off the whole sort of area and then, I mean, I didn't, I mean, how long are we talking? 15 years, something like that? How, how long ago would you say we're even talking? It's such a young discipline. Yeah. Oh, look, yeah. As a profession, you know, as an organized yeah. professional field. Oh, wow. Uh, well, you're pretty ugly back in the UK to the Sport and Exercise Nutrition Register. Um, yeah. I wouldn't like to say when, we, when it did go back, you know, there's some, you know, there's some quality research that goes back into, you know, the 1906 Boston Marathon and things like that. Um, but you're right. It certainly is. When did we start thinking this could be a career? You know, you're probably only talking, you know, the last 15 years or something like that. So it, you know, it is a, it is a, a new discipline um, and, and still finding its feet and finding its place in the, in the, um, in the world of sports science. And the reason why I'm mentioning that is because this is a fast, fluid field um, there is a huge amount of research, like you say, you know, I mean, the, the, the acceleration of the production of this research is mind-blowing, but the quality of that research is not so, is, you know, is not necessarily all good. There is, of course, um, also a, an amazing increase in technology, portable, you know, laboratory equipment. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that um, that is available that you will find um, involved in many of these different types of, of papers. But maybe maybe we, we should get into that area first because, of course, back then there were studies that were looking at your more sort of traditional contemporary views of sports nutrition. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, particularly at institutions like at Liverpool John Moores that you're obviously involved in, we are talking seriously, you know, high-tech research with, you know, muscle biopsies, molecular signaling studies, and so on. I mean, in terms of how all of that brings us to where we are today with the body of knowledge, 
Um, you know, how relevant is that in terms of the quality of the information that we have and how we should be looking at that as practitioners? Yeah, look, there's loads in my question. Um, yeah. Broadly speaking, if we're talking about good research and hopefully we can put the bad research to one side for a second, you know, you can almost classify the research as that is an inverted tester mechanism uh, and that is, uh, that is ready to be translated into practice. Now, I and our group at John Moore's, you know, working on doing both sides of that. So if we think about the muscle biopsy research where we're interested in does um, low carbohydrate training enhance mitochondrial biogenesis and things like that. That's very much mechanistic. So what we're looking at is uh, often measuring uh, mRNA and we're able to test the mechanism. Now, as good as that research is and forced uh, when it comes to the, the REF type of um, assessments, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's a really good paper. So suddenly more FARA should be running out and doing that type of training. The second type of training uh, of paper from the outside and might not look as impressive. But if you can do a 12-week training study where somebody does train low carbohydrate in a good quality runner and then it does improve performance, well, actually, the translational, translational ability of that second study would be far stronger than the first. But both are equally good papers. Now, a good example of that can be you know, the supernova studies by Louise Berg. So there was no real biopsies or anything like that number what louise did was get some of the world's best race walkers in camp put them on either a low or a high carbohydrate diet and measured race day performance after several weeks on different diets now for me that goes down as a landmark paper because the quality of that in terms of the translational ability is through the roof some people might think that's not as good as a research paper as one where we've controlled everything in a lab and taken a biopsy. We're just two very different things. And, and that's the first thing that we try and get across in the paper. You know, point number one is what was the author trying to achieve? Were they trying to test a mechanism or were they trying to um, uh, look at the translational ability? Now, there's a third category of research that we can just put in that pile of, in the office that we call um, trash. And that, that third category, category is where it's often done on low numbers. It's often done on the cheap. There's very little controls done uh, within it. And it's basically publishing for the publishing sake where, you know, we've got a low standard of subject. We've got low controls. We've maybe reported energy intake and expect, uh, badly. And we've said that athletes under eat by 50%. Where actually we know that there's a major problem with that as a measurement tool of self-reported food diaries. So, but by the way, that's not me trashing all food diet. There are good ways to do it, obviously. But the point being is that we need as somebody reading the paper to initially assess it on three levels. Was it applied? Was it mechanistic? Was it poor? And then we can move on to the next part of our evaluation. Yeah. 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 That brings me back then to, you know, the, the word relevant, because of course, you know, we look, like you say, you look at it and you could simplistically say, right, that, that, that's pretty decent research. That's some pretty good science there. Well, that's just absolutely awful, bin it. And then what you've got left, you can go, okay, this is, this is pretty decent, but maybe it's not relevant. 
maybe exactly and that's why we then said jump on to number three which was the participant characteristics so we've initially had that broad look at it saying okay you know where is it sitting on that context spectrum mm. but now let's look at the participants because as i said a few moments ago there's a world of difference between a club cyclist an elite cyclist and chris Froome. you know you only need to look at you know something like chris Froome's um lactate threshold or you know 300 watts is hardly broke into a sweat so of course his physiology is going to be very very different to what we normally see written in papers is well-trained six well-trained cyclists what does that even mean so what we're asking for in this paper is well-trained to be defined what do you mean by that we should be giving things like vo2 max or lactate threshold or peak power outputs um it makes a massive difference. And another good example is the age. So I've seen tweets based on ibuprofen and um, tweets suggesting that ibuprofen uh, promotes muscle protein synthesis and another tweet saying ibuprofen decreases it. How can that happen? Well, actually, when you look at the two papers, one was on the elderly and one was on young. So we've got to be looking at the participants in really good detail. We've got to be looking, obviously, at the age, I mean, the right age, of in the right fitness category. Um, and then you can begin to make a, a decision. Okay, is this relevant? And, and in the most um, most recent thing we've got to start giving far more attention to, and I know you've had Kirsty Elliott on a few times, mm. is we've got to start getting females into our studies. You know, we've ignored 50% of the population for far too long because it's harder to study females and males. But we've just got to start doing that. No, absolutely. Yeah, well, I mean, this, this is why I was so obsessed with context when I started to discover all this. Um, so you, you just mentioned something that, um, that, that I think is a very important point, and that is, you know, a lot of studies are done, um, uh, you know, uh, by students, typically, uh, uh, say, master's students, and you can help elaborate yeah. on this. Um, as part of their uh, MSc and they're producing work that's very good um, but there are obviously limits to what they can do as you know as we all know um, um, some labs are more limited than others that doesn't mean they're not doing good quality work but the big issue is is it doesn't necessarily means that that should be translated to the applied uh, arena particularly if we're using you know study participants of maybe 10 12, you know, um, fellow students, um, and then we're talking about um, you know applying this to an Olympic athlete. So, yeah. so you'll 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 hear the people banging on about the hierarchy of evidence. Da -da -da. Case studies are absolutely useless, and so on. But there may be a case study on the Olympic athlete, um, which is incredibly hard to do and rare. And as you know maybe you could just quickly as someone who also you know runs mscs and students conduct research just just how we can be mindful of 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 that research and where it fits on on that spectrum but also where we need to be careful with how we read and interpret that stuff because some of that does get into yeah. journals and papers of course of course it doesn't you know i've done research on the students ourselves because you know you're asking people to do biopsies it's quite hard to get pro athletes to come in and give you a muscle biopsy um even you know things like tannitate control of the muscle of the training for a few weeks it's hard to get that level of control um 
I think the key thing is that just you've got to take that into account when translating it. Mm. So, you know, we have been led down some, um, you know, I won't say blind alleys, but, we, you know, we've, we've maybe over-translated research. So, you know, as much as I think the, the, the nitrate story is really exciting about the beetroots and things like that, we've got to bear in mind that all the best evidence is on the lesser-trained people. There's still some evidence on the highly-trained, but... You know, these 10 and 20% improvements, you know, have been reported. If you think about how hard it is to get a 10% improvement in an elite athlete, I'll take a 0.1% improvement. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that. I'm just saying as somebody working in the field, um, and a, a good, another good example is anything that affects muscle protein synthesis. You know, you know what it's like when you first start weight training, the adaptations you get are very different than someone who's been lifting weights for a decade. So you've just got to bear that in mind when you're translating the uh, the information and look beyond non-meaningful descriptors. So well-trained resistance males, you know, peak squat of 80 kilos. Well, my 10-year-old can do that. That's not a well-trained person. So actually we need to have some quantifiable markers of what well-trained actually means. Uh, and don't just accept a descriptor. Absolutely. I, I also, just quickly, uh, just because it's in my head and I don't want to, uh, to forget, there's also been a, a sort of a purist approach to some research which um, has not allowed so much for the more human angles. And by that, I mean, um, you know, a more mixed methods approach where, you know, we're, we're not just looking at, at, at data in terms of, you know, you know uh, statistics and, and so on, but we're also looking at the experience side of this. Um, you know, what people liked and didn't like. Um, mm. You know, the, 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 these sorts of things, as we know, when we work with elite athletes, it isn't just a question of the evidence suggests that this particular thing will work. Sometimes the athlete just doesn't like to do it or there are practical issues or yeah. you know and, and we're not we people do studies these things occur but they don't include they don't include that in their research necessarily do, do you know do you do you feel there's some value there for example in case studies if i, I mentioned case studies they do mm. tend to talk about that more in case studies yeah well look a few years ago james and one of his phd students at the time john bartlett Mm. They just, I've interviewed John, yeah. You've interviewed John, have you? Great. Well, in one of John's early studies in his PhD, they just asked the participants, because they were using HIT, so, uh, you know, intermittent training as a uh, modality, uh, how much did we enjoy it? So I can't remember the exact duration, but whether it was a 30-minute continuous and a 30-minute HIT session. And the, the HIT one was far more enjoyable. And that actually turned out to be one of the most cited papers the groups ever published far more than a lot of the molecular biology. Mm. You know, if you think about a compliance perspective, if someone's going to find something more enjoyable, then great. You know, it's more likely to happen. Coming to a sport nutrition perspective, I don't know what your experience in football, Lauren, but I've never managed to get a football team or football players uh, multiple to commit to beetralanine supplementation no, because I, 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 now, in rugby context, people quite like the tingle. Yeah. You know, they actually feel like that it, it's doing some good work. Like tingle. <laughs> <laughs> and it's with the beetroot juice. You know, because at the elite end, I don't think the players have seen 
this huge benefit. What we might be talking about is a small benefit that might be hard to measure. The fact that it tastes like dirty socks, um, I, I don't think we're going to get many people to take it. I'm yeah, sorry. well, we've got enough things to worry about, haven't we? Um, anyway, the, uh, you were going into full-on Wigan accent there. It almost sounded like a dog barking. <laughs> it is a dog barking. I'm going to shut the door, Lawrence. So you can ask me to shut the door. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it is actually really interesting how, you know, we, we spend a lot of time reading all this research and um, there's a great deal of uh, evidence, like you say, behind some of these these products. And I found, you know, I've certainly found this firsthand, particularly when I was in the World Cup, actually. I I had all sorts of tricks up my sleeve I was going to use with, with the players. And just quite frankly, uh, they just didn't want to do it. Um, and one of the reasons was, you know, they, they had their minds on many other things. And, um, you know, th- this is actually an important thing is that, that sometimes meal times is that opportunity just to rest and relax and have a chat with your mates. And actually maybe, especially when you're traveling away from weeks and weeks away, you, you just want to enjoy your food. You don't want to swallow some horse pill um you know it, it, and you've got and especially when you don't really understand what it does and then you you know you've got to get into conversations about is this is this really going to do something for me i can't look at them straight in the face and go yeah it's going to be mind-boggling you know nitro boost on the pitch you know no just throw it over their shoulder you know it it, it, it really is as simple as that yeah, fish oil is another good example that, you oh, know, repeat. Yeah. in a footballing environment, a lot of players don't like how it may repeat on you. Yeah. Um, again, I'm not really yeah. that in rugby. So, look, you know, I, I think asking that type of, um, you know, enjoyment factor and satisfaction mm. is important. And, and that also kind of leads nicely into another thing that we're asking the readers to look at which is, you know, how well is that study been placeboed? You know, because if you think about caffeine, it's virtually impossible to placebo a caffeine trial because you know you've had it. Yeah. I know the slow release in B trial and you know it shouldn't give you the tingle, but, you know, sometimes people report that it does. Um, so it, it's very hard in sport nutrition research to move away from the placebo effect. Um, you know, things like a high or low carbohydrate diet, it's pretty, unless you're going to do an NG tube, it's pretty, most people would understand if they've got a plate full of rice versus a plate full of chicken, but you know, you're on a quite a different diet. So, you know, it's worth bearing that in mind, although the caveat I would always put on top of that is that ultimately in the real world, if there is a slight placebo effect, then so be it. You know, if ultimately we're trying to get people to um, perform that a little bit better. I thought Louise Burke did a really interesting design in that supernova study that I talked about previously, the low and the high carbohydrate, because what she didn't want to do was people who believe in carbohydrate work, uh, perform worse because they believe that they're going to do worse. She actually asked the participants in advance, who's read into the high fat, who believes in it, who's read into the carbohydrate, who believes in it, to actually assign participants to group based on their belief. So actually those who were in the low-carb group believed it would work. And those who were in the high-carb group probably believed that the high-carb would work as a way of to try and mask the belief effect. Mm. Yet she still found in that context that those in the high-carb group perform better, despite those in the low-carb group believing they would perform better. So that whole belief effect and the cognitive bias that comes with it, um, 
it's really important in sport nutrition. It's something that we definitely need to look at when we're, when we're reading our papers. Yeah, I, I've got into placebos and nocebos with a number of, of guests, including Andy Lane, uh, Professor Andy Lane before, and uh, also Mayor Ranchuras. We, we talked about that as well. Um, and I absolutely, uh, I absolutely believe in that. Uh, and actually, when you reverse some of this and you go, um, a player, let's say they believe in beta alanine. Yeah. Um, and it's not because they're a sports scientist and they've read all the evidence. It's just they believe that it works. But you as a practitioner decide, you know what, I can't be bothered to using it. I don't believe in the evidence enough. I'm going to take it away. The negative impact that that could have on the player or group of players who are like, hey, hang on. I thought this stuff worked and you're taking it away from me. You know, yeah. and the belief then that that could damage their performance is, an, is, a, is another area that's worth thinking about, isn't it? Oh yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. And the, you know, the mind, as we know, well, sports played on a six-inch field between my left ear and my right ear, and you know, the power of the mind is so important. I've heard some great podcasts on your show, you know, about that. Um, and even in terms of color, we know that you know, the pharmaceutical industry are very aware of the effects of color on what that does. So you know red being motivating energy and blues and that being calming. Um, even the shape of a tablet, you know, we know that certain blue diamond pills have a certain effect. And if that exact same pill didn't work as a white round pill, you know, that's because you're not believing in it the same way. So all the all the um, studies we try and do, right at the moment, I've mentioned CBD oil a couple of times because I'm doing a little bit of research on it. I've got my team at the moment spending ages now playing with different oils to work out what is the most taste match. Um, the, the CBD oil we're testing is peppermint flavoured, so we're infusing at the moment various oils with peppermint to try and get it to taste the same. We're making sure that the oils look the same colour and it's been served in identical bottles. So, you know, we do everything we can to take away that placebo effect. Sometimes it's, it's just not possible. Yeah, I mean, you know, and of course, you know, the bigger picture, which is really what we're talking about here, is it's it's almost impossible to control everything here, isn't it? And, yeah. And and in fact, the more you think about it, the more complex everything is, and the more problems there actually are. Um, so speaking of which, and, and sort of getting back into the flow of your paper, you know, we, we we've delved into this a bit already, but we'll get deeper. Is um, you, you refer to the, uh, the, the the considerable ambiguity in categorizing things like fitness status and physiological yeah. profiles and body composition? I mean, you've only got to look at a squad of football players and they all look different. You've only got to yeah. go into the gym and look around. There's just so you know. And I'm not talking about genetics um, in its most simple, you know, in that sort of angle. But it really is unbelievable how much variation there is you know, height, weight, fitness levels, and so on. You know, why, why is this important um, when it comes to considering that in the interpretation of the findings um, and, and, you know, how we translate that into practice? Well, as we said before, it's huge. If you, if you talk about the fitness levels, well, we know that the way somebody adapts who's highly trained will be very different to somebody who's untrained. We know about muscle protein synthesis being very different. Um, we know, um, and a good example will be CLA, conjugated linoleic acid, that's got a claim with regards to 
drop in body fat. And yes, there is a meta-analysis that shows a modest effect. Well, that's a modest effect if you're obese. You know, there's no evidence as far as I can see that that has any efficacy at the type of body fat levels that we're probably coming across in, in the sports where we work at. Yeah, I know a lot of people might take it because we've read somewhere that it works and it drops body fat. So, you know, the participant characteristics is absolutely essential. It's, it's often poorly described. Asker Yukendrup did a great job in one of his papers where for cycling, he defined what the various level of trained, untrained, highly trained should be. Uh, and he defined it in terms of VO2, lactate threshold, peak power outputs, racing experience, everything like that. So, yeah, I just go back down to telling people that it's fine if, if what you're looking at is you've got 20 university students who play for the university rugby team. Just make sure people know that and you define what they look like. Yeah. 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 I mean, and also if we go into the considerable variation in the equipment that is used to assess these things in the tests and not only the variation in the equipment, but the variation in skill sets in operating that equipment really starts to be a bit of a Pandora's box in my view. Um, you know, and we haven't got time. I mean, I've gotten into some of this with various guests on this, on this podcast, like, you know, the issues with, you know, the, the, the gold standard, as we call it, with DEXA, but the issues that there are with DEXA yeah. as well. Um, you know, we, we need to think maybe some of these tools that we use, you know, what, what, what were they actually designed for? Well, maybe for bone density, there's one level of confidence, yeah. but for body fat, maybe slightly different. You know, th th these are things that, you hear though people use phrases like gold standard. I mean, and you know, you we'll talk about research design in a minute, but, but is there really a gold standard or is it maybe more context dependent? I think for a lot of our, um, a lot of our measurements, no, there isn't, you know, you've said Dexter a couple of times, uh, you know, I, I remember uh, process of writing a, a paper I've called comeback skin folds, all is forgiven. Um, I was going to pinch my title now yeah. um, but you know and I'm writing out with uh, Andy Casper who's you know a really talented young um, sport nutritionist hmm. and that's partly because as you say I think we you know there's so many controls that we've got to put in place now to get a DEXA uh, accurate but people always forget that with a DEXA ultimately it comes back down to pulling out a prediction equation and that's what we've criticised in Skinfolds for years the use of prediction equations it's just that we don't see the prediction equation being used because a machine does it for us. Mm. Uh, yeah, Closely right. guarded secret as well. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Mm. You know, what, we, what you can do if you want is go into the DEXA software. And there's maybe about 100 different equations there, if not more. And you can completely change the data you get by picking a different equation. Um, that, let alone the differences you get by if someone's been on creatine or glycogen loaded or just fed or hydrated. Anyway. We're about to hold the thing on DEXA. But you're right on the gold standard terminology because people talk about um, weight food intakes have been a gold standard. Like, who's decided that's a gold standard? I'll tell you, no, it's not. I've, I've seen papers that suggest that snap and send is now the gold standard way of assessing energy intake. And again, this term gold standard is banded about a lot. Um, you're right, but in many situations, you've got the best method in that given situation. 
Um, I don't think was in our field. There's a lot. There's many gold standards to be honest. Well, I, I, the way I like to look at that is it, it's largely a question of understanding the tools that you're using, the strengths and their limitations, isn't it? And and if you if you don't if you don't have that level of knowledge and practical experience with those tools then you're probably not well placed to understand the value of that information and it comes back to trust again doesn't it i mean in science you use the word confidence but mm. trust you know how trustworthy is that information just about the dexa thing because i think that's a particularly interesting one is it also depends on which brand of dexa or which model even within the same brand yeah you, you could use a, a, a model of dexa that's maybe two years younger or older yeah. and it will in itself um, you know, provide something that's different than a different yeah. one. I mean, it is yeah, more we, we had that problem ourselves, Lauren. We upgraded the same machine, same manufacturer, same model of machine, just so not same model, the same brand within it. So the top of the range from a certain deck to manufacturer, and we got the upgrade, the brand new one, and we'd been testing place for years, but suddenly we're 2% higher body fat. Yeah, yeah. It's just well, an upgraded machine. And, so then you've got very awkward conversations that sort of with your athletes that suddenly they put on 2% body fat, particularly in less informed clubs where they've come up with a fine system for a certain number. Oh. The players are going yeah, back and getting fined. Yeah, 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 well, yeah. And a lot of those portable machines are pretty old as well. That's another another subject. The, uh, yeah, but, and again, the reason why I'm mentioning this is because people are, you know, they're looking at, meta-analyses that's comparing many different studies for example but again it's different bits of equipment in each study different operators i mean there's a whole lot of stuff going on there that that people need to be a little bit more careful with which is why i want to bring it back to yeah. what i originally said is the importance of the practitioner who's a you know the idea is that as a practitioner you're supposed to be a, a, a you know a rational human being capable of critical thinking you're not a robot you're not just a piece of software processing this stuff and and that's why it is so important that we have not just the knowledge and the skills but the awareness of the strengths and limitations that you know that we've been discussing here which makes it pretty mind-blowing which means at best you i've mentioned this before in a previous podcast but i i don't like the word evidence-based practice i like the 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 phrase evidence-informed practice because we're looking at this and we're using these as, as uh, this as information as tools to inform our practice if we are evidence-based and we're more like a robot then we're not allowing for all the nuances and all the issues that that you've you know that you've been discussing which absolutely could affect the quality of the advice that we give um mm -hmm. and obviously the uh, the outcomes and and in our work particularly at the elite level like you say we'll take a one percent you know, improvement. But if, 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 if we're not doing this right, we're actually going to um, generate a 1% or more decrease yeah. um, because we're giving bad advice, even if it is based on evidence, quotes, unquote. Yeah, and you, that takes nicely into um, thinking about the reliability of the equipment that you're using. Um, so, you know, we're recently publishing a, a paper with James Mohan, his last study from his PhD, Great. where what he's looked at is the changes in lean mass over the course of several pre-seasons in, uh, in rugby league players. And what we're finding in many of the pre-seasons, that the change in muscle mass is within the error of the DEX machine itself. 
So we were trying to work out how do you work that. So like a non-meaningful, and so we're, we're trying to define meaningful as wider than the reliability of the machine. Now, you know, some people could look at that differently and see there's a kilo increase, but that, that's quite simple within the area of a machine. The other thing I point out to a lot of people is that people might talk about that a certain piece of kit is reliable. In whose hands? So the way I was taught this is, you know, could a McLaren F1 get around Silverstone in two minutes 20? Well, depends who's driving it. Mm. I'm, I'm sure um, Jensen Button or somebody highly skilled like that could get it around in that time. Me, probably two weeks because I'm one of the world's worst drivers and I had a spun off after the first bend. But what you can't say is that that, is, that can do that. So you can't say that that bit of kit is reliability is under a percent. Depends how you've set it up, how you've calibrated, how careful. Yeah, Even yeah. the instructions, you think something as simple as a counter-movement jump is completely affected by the queuing instructions that you give. Whether you're telling someone to press from the floor as fast as you can or as hard as you can will completely change the reliability of that bit of kit. So I don't think it's acceptable in a paper to say that we use this bit of kit Previous studies have shown that the coefficient of variation is less than 5%. No. What is it in your hands? And now I can get an idea as whether the improvement that you report in your results is beyond the reliability of a kit in your hands, not in the hands of somebody highly experienced. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. We're singing from the same hymn book here. You know, again, a simplification is you know to use your driving metaphor is people are either incompetent competent or an expert um in the same way that you can't drive you can drive or you're a formula one racer i think that's yeah. absolutely bang on and what we're talking about here is 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 being able to recognize are you incompetent are you competent and more importantly what, what do you need to do to become an expert which is why your pathway here is so useful in that in that journey for practitioners to improve their their capabilities of being expert. Um, I just realized, Lauren, that was number six, the validity and reliability. I forgot about that. So we've kind of covered one of our points. There you go. Well, there you so, go. So look, I mean, there, there's a lot that we can get into. And at the end of the day, my purpose here is, is less about trying to, you know, um, turn this into an audio book for your paper. <laughs> you know, the whole point here is to, is to add to, you know what the, the, everyone needs to read this paper but i want to add to it and unpack it which is what we've been doing um if, if we can just uh, before we get, you know we're not far off the end here um if you could just quickly take us through then your paper to podium um matrix let's just get practical here because i think everyone gets the gist yeah of what we've been talking about and when they read the paper that'll add to it but let's let's just get practical about the actual matrix Okay, so, so what we were saying is that, Luke, when you're going to read a paper, if you have this matrix in front of you, um, it will help to guide your reading. Because as you said, sometimes you can get lost reading a paper. Uh, I know a lot of people would skip the methods. They might read the introduction then jump onto the conclusion. They might flick through the figures. So what we were trying to get them to do is look at the research context uh, initially. And the idea then is when you look at the paper, come up with a scoring system. And this isn't necessarily, this is what we, it took a while to convince reviewers about. 
this isn't a criticism of the paper. So if you get a minus two, so we've scored it minus two, minus one, zero, plus one, and plus two. If you've given a paper zero on a research context, or minus two, that doesn't mean that's a bad paper. It just means that the research context isn't translatable to our situation. So an example I've used is, for example, it might be some, some work on uh, cell lines where you've put a, um, a compound of interest onto a cell and you've seen, like turmeric, for example, and you've seen a massive benefit. Dead interesting, loads of um, uh, potential for future work, but can turmeric get past the gut to actually get to cells that it wants? So the context of, uh, is in our hands would have to be a minus two. So that's the first thing. When you look at a paper, if you end up with a minus score, that doesn't mean it's a bad paper. It just means it's not translatable in this world. So we, we looked at, um, I'm just pulling up, uh, so the research context for participants, again, give them a score, the design, what we've talked about. One that we haven't talked about is the diet and exercise controls. Mm. So a good example here is a lot of mechanistic research uses fasted individuals. Now, that's really good to control and look at a mechanism. But how often would you get an athlete to run fasted? So we know that a lot of the carbohydrate mofrins literature is more beneficial when it's done in a fasted state. And we know that a lot of the um, stuff that has shown a real benefit of polyphenols on a muscle soreness have been done when you've taken all polyphenols out of a diet. So looking at them diet and exercise controls is really important. Um, we looked at the validity and reliability. Data analytics is a one that we haven't really covered. But what we mean by that is, you know, I've seen some papers over, and a good example here is the, the only paper I've seen that's really shown that low carbohydrate training enhanced performance. It was done on five people. Two people did better, two people did worse, uh, one stayed the same. But overall, the mean was better. So when we actually look at the data analytics, we're looking at how we've presented the data and it's been presented in such a way um, where it's trying to promote a story that the author might want to promote. And then the final couple of things that we want people to look at is a real what I would say would interest you as much as, um, you know, as anyone, which is like the feasibility of the application uh, and the, you know, the risk reward and the timing of it. So there may be some things, and let's you know, talk about um, B-trialing might be a decent example again here. You know, we're going to need six weeks minimum of taking six grams a day and getting a tingle. We know that there's a lot of athletes won't do that. Or if you're looking at other things that might take six months of supplementation every day, we're probably not going to do that. So the feasibility of the application is really important. Uh, the risk and reward is really important. I've mentioned CBD a few times now. The, reward, the risk on that is too high because you can't get it tested. So at the moment, it's still in the interest phase, but the risk reward's really high. And then like the timing of the intervention, can we get the timing of it right? So when you put all that together, the idea will be, if you get a positive score, there's a fair chance that we can give that an immediate translation. If you get a negative score, it might be okay, well, we might give it a go, but the research isn't really pushing us down bad at the moment for immediate translational potential. And that's all it is, really, Laurent. We're just trying to get people to um, look deeper at a paper and going back to your very early point, what is evidence-based practice? 
Well, for me, evidence-based practice is taking the evidence, asking yourself, is this evidence translatable to the specific scenario we want? And then putting that into practice. It's not just saying, is there a random paper on it in a random group of people which will justify uh, a claim that a manufacturer has made? Exactly. And that's why I, I always bang on about just because someone uses or it's written you know it's evidence-based it doesn't mean that it actually is um that's a misinterpretation of what that that term actually is which i think yes. is sort of blown open blown open on us well look i mean i'd love to talk about this for many more hours i'm i'm fascinated by it it's such an important you know area and thank you so much for your contributions uh, to this much needed topic of, of evidence-based practice and uh, and all your other work, obviously, um, that, that you've contributed to sports nutrition and your time. I know you're a busy man, um, so we really appreciate it. Just to uh, just to end, I know you're all you're you're pretty active on uh, social media and so on, and um, you're definitely one of the ones that I highly recommend people follow. Um, so, how how do people uh, uh, get to learn more about you and? you're up to you know like your website and uh, yeah so um i do have a website um close nutrition.com uh, which is a microsite from the ljmu website so they've actually done me a nice little website myself from the university um social media uh, it's close underscore nutrition for twitter or just close nutrition for instagram um and if you want to ask me something personally uh, my email is all over the university website. It's not hard to get. So you just look up Graham Close at Liverpool John Moores. People can find my email that way. Thank you so much, Graham. As as always, it's an absolute pleasure to have you uh, on this podcast and, and having a, a good chat. Um, I'll just end up by uh, saying thank you to the listeners. Um, this is, you know, as I said, uh, episode, I think, 111. Um I haven't been doing that many of, of late because I've been busy and and so on. But um, I've got a whole series ahead now, so it's great to have Graham kick. Uh, what will hopefully be uh, every couple of weeks will be a podcast released. Um, you can find out about those podcasts at guruperformance.com. It's on iTunes. You can download it um, offline. Different different ways of getting hold of that, um, as well as all the other educational things we get up to at uh, Guru Performance. Just check it out there. I, of course, am Laurel Bannock and look forward to bringing another episode back to you all um, very soon.